0: It's Tuesday, February 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca, And yes, today is the day of the momentous announcement, that will come soon, but first, a fairly momentous announcement if your name is Alec Baldwin, in fact if you are specifically the Alec Baldwin who is the actor who has been charged by New Mexico officials of manslaughter for the shooting on the set of Rust. He and his lawyers recently won a big legal argument, and the charges against him have been, well, the charges haven't been downgraded, but the possible penalty that he is exposed to has been lessened from an exposure of five years to 18 months. And the reason for this is that the shooting occurred in October 2021, but the law that allowed for as many as five years to be served for a negligent charge of manslaughter that was passed afterwards. So the lawyers, I think quite appropriately, quite necessarily, this is what lawyers do and should do, said, you cannot charge my client and have him exposed five years. This also is true for the armorer who was charged in this case. And as a result, of the strength of the argument, the prosecutors themselves did drop the charges. I'm not here just to give you updates about celebrity shootings or shootings of or by celebrities, but I'm a little bit fascinated by this case because so many of the framings and phrasings of the prosecution, not to, not to mention the actual decision to charge a guy who was handed a gun that he was told wasn't loaded as actors always are, but so many of them are questionable and questionable in a certain direction. So first of all, The special prosecutor in this case, since being appointed special prosecutor. She got elected to the New Mexico State House. She's a Republican, and Alec Baldwin is, if not anti Republican, certainly quite famously a mocker of Donald Trump and a big Democratic donor. That alone doesn't mean much, except for everything else that's going on. In every public announcement about the charging, the emphasis is always we here in New Mexico are asserting that no one is above the law. We're charging Alec Baldwin and the others because the law applies evenly to everyone. They're going out of their way to make some sort of populist case about why the facts of this case warrant these gun charges. I don't know that they do, but it does strike me as, I don't know, they're very much leaning into country mouse versus city mouse framing. Listen to what Heather Brewer, spokeswoman for the district attorney, said after the prosecution dropped the firearm enhancement, the five-year charge. They did so, quote, to avoid further litigious distractions by Mr. Baldwin and his attorneys. Distractions? I guess it would be distracting for those extra three and a half years he might have served if he was found guilty. Yeah, that was a distraction as he looked at a jail cell. It's just called good effective lawyering. And Brewer, the spokeswoman, went on to say, The prosecution's priority is securing justice, not securing billable hours for big city attorneys. You know, we think that what prosecutors and DAs, what they try to do is win. They don't. They're actually charged with delivering justice. And in this case, their definition of justice seems very much tied into, we're not going to let a big Hollywood star come here and, I don't know, get away with a non-crime? We're not going to let a big Hollywood star come in here and not be charged, even if plausibly they shouldn't be charged. Don't worry, we'll stand against him even though we're applying enhancements that were passed after the crime occurred. It's just very, very odd. And listen, if you're a guest of the gist, even if I wasn't hosting that day, I'm not saying that will always come to your defense. I don't think I was coming to Baldwin's defense. I was just pointing out oddness with the prosecution. But The Gist is here for you. And this brings me to my big announcement. I want The Gist to be here for you in ways that you have never been able to experience before. We are offering a premium subscription model. You can, for $4.99 a month, get The Gist ad-free. This will save you time. This might save you mental space to properly process the arguments of the gist. Whatever you wanna do with your time or just to support the gist and the journalism we do, $4.99 a month. For $8.99 a month, we have the Pesca Plus option. And this is you get longer, media interviews. So you've maybe heard me talking about this before. The interviews that air on our show are not how long they take to tape in real life. They're about half the length, sometimes even less than that. And people who listen to the raw interviews or at least lengthier interviews say, I think those interviews would stand right up there with some of the best long form interviewing podcasts. I do too, but I also always wanted the gist to be taught and to respect your time, but there is an interest in longer, meatier interviews. And so as a Pesca Plus member at $8.99, you get that option. I will now give you where to sign up for these options. And there are other price points too. Like, uh, I could come in and co-manage a fantasy football team with you. Go to subscribe.mikepeska.com. That is subscribe.mikepesca.com. This is where media is moving. It is very hard for I, as an independent, truly independent podcaster, which doesn't just mean untethered to a big media organization. It means that I'm not doctrinaire, and I'm not heterodox, and I'm not anti-heterodox. I just need the leeway, and so far, you guys in the audience have allowed me and supported my having the leeway to go where the arguments take me, and I take you there, but it's not easy. It's a lot easier to be recognizably identifiable as either left-wing or right-wing or some niche therein, so this is what we have to do. This is what we, as a modern media company, has to do to survive and to bring you programming that really appeals to you, and that is different from much of the other programming that you get. If you like the gist, you might like it for a number of reasons, but one of them is the independence of the program, and this allows the independence to remain, to obtain, subscribe.mikepeska.com. On the show today, I will spiel about a somewhat related topic, one that I've been thinking about a lot, audience capture, or the importance, nay... The necessity, I said nay, the necessity for broadcasters, newspapers, reporters, outlets to sometimes risk pissing off their audience. But first, Tim Blake Nelson is an actor you know. He was in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs and Oh Brother Where Art Thou. He just showed up in the Peacock series Poker Face. He played a stock car driver. Great episode. He's also the author of a book. A first-time novelist. You know, what they said when they were shooting Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He was the only one who came in having read Homer. He was, I think, a classics major at Brown. It's an excellent book. It's called City of Blows. And Tim Blake Nelson is here to talk about it. And if you are a Pesca Plus subscriber, this is the first interview that we will give you the longer, meteor form that is 899 at subscribe.mikepesca.com. That will be available. Everyone else, you for $4.99 could go ad-free, or you could just choose to listen as you've always been choosing. Tim Blake Nelson up next. Tim Blake Nelson is an actor who you know. Oh, brother, where art thou? Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He's also a playwright, a filmmaker, and now a novelist. City of Blows is the name of his book. The City That Blows is (laughs) Los Angeles. It's about Hollywood, but it's about the backstory of some of the dysfunctional and uh, pretty chaotic slash evil characters who inhabit the haunts. Of the industry that he knows and maybe tolerates, maybe likes. Tim, welcome to the gist. It's
1: my pleasure to be
0: here. I, I appreciate your having me on. So I don't know if the, I hope this is a compliment, which is that I've watched many of your movies and I've always enjoyed them. And if you came on the screen, I said to myself, Ooh, it's Tim Blake Nelson. This'll be good. I have never once been tempted to look up anything about your background. And I, I don't know if that's a testament to you or just that you're doing the job that you're supposed to do, which is inhabiting a character. And I never thought about like who the real guy was. I asked that for a reason, but let's just stop there. Do you take offense at that or is do you take pride in that?
1: Uh, no, I don't take offense at it. I, I have no, um, I, I don't take offense at it in the least. I think that I should be the characters you see on screen and The more you can disassociate that from my own biography, the better. And that you weren't interested in finding out who I was, I suppose I take as a compliment. Right. So, and then
0: of course, you know, sometimes with George Clooney, I don't ask, but we know everything about him, someone like that. But the reason I ask this is I'm three paragraphs into your book and it smacks me. And this could have smacked me one sentence into your book. Tim Blake Nelson is Jewish? It was just so obvious that for you to have characters, Isaac and Jacob, and talking about them so authoritatively in their their Y, their Y-W-H-A in Chicago, there is no way a non-Jew would write these characters. So I immediately looked up your bio, and indeed you are Jewish.
1: That's correct. Uh, In in fact, uh, 100% Ashkenazi, which I learned only because... My youngest son, as a Hanukkah present a few years ago, asked that we all do Ancestry.com. The
0: book is about or takes place in almost modern Hollywood, actually dawn of uh, the COVID outbreak. By the end, people are wearing masks and not taking them off. But it really goes back in time, and it talks about the um, upbringing of most of the main characters, Who are mostly men. Hollywood is still run by men, often unscrupulous men. But we understand what created these men, what crafted them. And in most cases, the answer is, or at least we get to know, the huge impact that their fathers had upon them. So as I think about it, without really being explicit, this is a novel about fathers and sons, and you are a father of sons. So I expect that's not a coincidence.
1: Sure, it's about fathers and sons, but it's also about men and women and what men do to women um and that goes back of course to the Abrahamic underpinnings of the of the novel itself uh and yeah, I am a father of, <laughs> of three crazy um boys uh and and um hopefully I'm not. Hopefully I'm raising them uh, uh, to, to be not as venal as some of the characters in this novel.
0: Well, will they then be able to succeed in Hollywood should they choose to go into that business?
1: I, I don't think that that to succeed in, in Los Angeles, uh, one needs to be uh, venal or opportunistic or corrupt uh, or mean um I've encountered a lot of that I've encountered more of that than I have decency this novel has satirical extremes to it and it's 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 painted in particular colors uh, that that I think make it an integral narrative uh, and those tend to be darker but um, but ultimately, I think there are some pretty decent characters in the novel, um, and I and I and I also think that the flawed main characters are ultimately treated pretty sympathetically, which is one of the reasons I provide these backstories. I have always found, and you've been in many works
0: of narrative fiction, that competence isn't necessarily an heroic trait but it tends towards the heroic such that i can't think of a a very sympathetic character from any work of fiction or tv show that wasn't competent that wasn't really good at their jobs from even even if they were iconoclastic Hawkeye and BJ from MASH, they were always portrayed as the best surgeons. And Mary Tyler Moore was always at least an excellent news producer. And just go down the list, even the anti-heroes, you know, um, James Gandolfini was a pretty savvy mob boss and Walter White was very good at his job of cooking meth. So- I think that there's something about competence and and audiences being very interested and invested in a character.
1: I don't know. I would I would bring up Don Quixote.
0: Well, at what point is it revealed <laughs> that it was all? <laughs> so so you're taking narrative fiction going back to the first novel. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe it's more characters that we are asked to invite into our homes, right? Maybe a novel can uh, screw with that a little
1: bit. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a good point, but what's interesting is to try and bring up countervailing examples. Um, You know, I think all of Kafka's heroes are ultimately incompetent, and he's really exploring that. Uh, um, You know, uh, Joseph K. never gets... to to his meeting at the castle. Um, uh, In the trial, our man is executed at the end. Gregor Samsa is um, killed at the end, and he never gets out of his cockroach being. Uh, And I, you know, I'm, I think you're right. I don't want to throw down with you or anything. You're obviously very well read, and it's exciting to talk about this. And so, in the spirit of talking about it, um, I would also bring up uh, Coen Brothers characters, because I think what really interests them and why I love their movies is the haplessness of their protagonists. And in Coen Brothers movies, by and large, you have someone, whether it's uh, Jerry Lundergard in Fargo, or uh, Everett McGill in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? or uh, Lewin Davis, um, Lebowski. These are always characters who are a step behind, which is the Jewish, this is the principal tenet of Judaism. They're always a step behind trying to organize what life is. And they're always failing. Um, a really great example is uh, uh, um, Larry Gopnik in A Serious Man. Uh, you know, he he even changes the grade at the end, but the tornado is coming. So I would, yeah, I don't
0: mind throwing down, which is this. What... I was what you're pointing to in terms of competence is competence at life and being on top of things. And of course, I would say, of course, no Kafka Kafka character can be because his whole point is society is arrayed so that you can't succeed at that. I mean, this is why he names Gregor Samsa. Gregor Samsa, literally, I am alone in uh, in Czech, I believe. But Marge Gunderson cracks the case and the dude figures out what was going on and essentially cracks the case. And, um, I don't know if Nathan Arizona is the hero or no, he's probably not. It's, um, it's Nicholas Cage's character, but they're on top of things, you know, they have figured it out. They don't maybe win at the end and they're revealed. It's revealed that society bests them just like the Korean war bests, uh, Best Hawkeye, but I do think it's harder. Just like Jacob in your book, knowing that this guy really does know the film industry, um, I think it is one of the ways that the reader wants to at least be in his presence
1: for a while. I think that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, we can go back. I, I, see, I would argue that that the protagonist of Fargo is Jerry. I'm not sure what the what Joel and Ethan would say. I do know because I have insider information on it that when they were writing Fargo, they for what Fran brought to the role was was something quite unexpected for them. When they were writing it, they they saw Marge as just this kind of irritating, uh, irritatingly persistent uh, woman. Uh, who was just uh, a, a touch too persnickety. And then Fran brought this uh, uh, humanity to her and um, she counterbalanced in a really wonderful way um, the the everyman character that was so gorgeously depicted by Bill Macy. Did writing,
0: honestly, uh, forthrightly about aspects of not just interracial marriage, but from the perspective of African-American characters who are iconoclastic in their own right. Did did that, oh, I'm not going to say give you pause, but was there extra care and attention to make sure that you got that right, as opposed to maybe letting it rip about, say, a character like David Levitt's background
1: and experience? That's a really good question. And I suppose at a certain point, I said, I just need to take the restraints off of myself. I was really, I'm very interested in a particular species of African-American intellectuals who dare to go against certain orthodoxies. Um, People like Jason Riley, Thomas Sowell, uh, John McWhorter, uh, and the economist um, Glenn Lowry and I, I wanted them to have a voice in this novel, but to push it further. And so I made the character who espouses some of those beliefs uh, a bit of a bomb thrower. Um, and, and in choosing not to restrain myself and to let him go a little bit, I, I hope anyway it allows those... Uh, uh, those passages um to to land a little more uh um I don't want to say persuasively but 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 land more uh resoundingly
0: yeah as authentically as everything else right
1: yeah cuz the you know the woke movement and and particularly the me too movement really do get i would say get a good voice in the novel and there's a scene in which the Jacob Rosenthal character gets called out and he responds defensively and offensively in his defensiveness. Uh, and he recognizes it the next day and said, you know, says, you know, I was, I'm just threatened. Um, and, and so I, you know, I'm, I, I wanted to give every side of these issues a legitimate and authentic voice.
0: Since there is so much of Both those movements, certainly the Me Too movement, um, there's a Harvey Weinstein type character, very clearly Harvey Weinstein, did it give you the chance to play out thoughts, arguments, counter-arguments, the best version of arguments that you don't even necessarily agree with? Was the book an opportunity
1: for that? Yes. I, I mean, I would say more so I was interested in the predicaments in which the in which victims find themselves. Uh, but without making it a victim book. So there's a scene in in the novel that involves a pretty serious sexual assault. There's no other way of putting it. or Actually, a rape. Um, And there's actually two scenes. Uh, And I've known actresses who've had that happen to them, And who've described in awful, devastating detail the predicament in which they found themselves afterwards in either shutting up, swallowing it, and having a career, or choosing to expose what had happened and, in all likelihood, losing their careers. Now, I know that people have gone over this. Uh, uh, territory. There's a movie out this year, he, uh, she said, but I wanted to do it in the novel in a really detailed way that looked at exactly how this kind of thing happens and really specifically how it can ramify in a way that's so persuasive that it causes people you know, a a, a, a an existential it it, it affects an existential decision for people whether they're going to do something about what's happened to them
0: right because in she said we hear their testimony but in a novel like this we inhabit their thought process as they're going through it it's one of the great benefits of this art form
1: I I completely agree and that's why I wanted to do this that the in a novel, I'm really interested in the thingness of the thing. And so that if 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 a film is, is going to be a great film, to me, it has to be so filmic that you can't imagine it in any other medium. Same with a play. I'd like to go to a play and say, well, this could only be a play. Uh, and with this novel, I wanted to do stuff that that you can only do in a novel and and not only stuff that's tolerated by the reader, but is expected. Uh, and that involves psychology, a lot of psychology and backstory and readers of this novel will find, uh, digressions inside of digressions. And I like that. I like in the middle of, of, uh, uh, Brothers Karamazov, you suddenly read this Grand Inquisitor story or the Onion Parable from Father Zosima. Um, and you can only do that in a novel. In, in a movie, you're attacked for it. Or actually, it won't even get in the movie because the, your financier or a studio will say, um, I, I don't like this because it takes too many detours. It needs to be streamlined. Tim Blake Nelson is the
0: author of City of Blows, his new, his first novel. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Hey, you know what you like about me? It's that I don't always tell the audience what it wants to hear. I don't know that I'd be so grandiose to phrase it that I tell you what you need to hear. That's more how news orgs of yore, or news new orgs used to say it. But you know I'm not beholden to doctrine. I'm moderate except when I'm not. I'm centrist except when I'm not. I'm contrarian except when I'm not, which is exactly what a contrarian would say. And you like it. How do I know you like it? You're here. Or maybe a better way to put it is, you don't dislike it so much that you've left and not come back. But listeners always say, they do say this to me, Mike, I don't always agree with you, but I appreciate that you lay out your arguments, or Mike, we're not in 100% agreement, or something along the lines of, when I disagree, it's a good counter-argument. But you know what they don't say? They don't say, I disagreed so often, I just said you know, there are a lot of other uses for my time. I mean, they might say that to someone who's not me, but you know what they don't say? They don't say, I just disagreed so often that I said to myself there are other uses of my time. I mean, they might say that to someone, they just don't say it to me, or at least they just don't say it in a place I have access to. In other words, they're out. They're gone. They disagreed too often. And I do think about this all the time. The guy who doesn't pander to the audience, oh, we all love that guy, the guy who tells it like it is, even if the audience isn't predisposed to liking how it is, ah, that is great merit. A hero, right? Or seems to have merit. We wish Lou Dobbs and Maria Bartiromo would just tell it like it is, wouldn't pander to their audience, although. The reason Lou Dobbs left CNN and Maria Bartiromo is off CNBC is because at one time they said to themselves, I don't want to pander to this audience. I want to tell it like it is. And like it is, as we're hearing on Fox Business News in their coverage, isn't really how it is. So this gets to this question. I don't know the answer. Not always telling the audience what it wants to hear as a good thing versus Ah, I just disagreed with that guy way too much as a bad thing. What's the line? You know, what's the line with don't always agree and started disagreeing too much? I think the line is somewhere between 15 and 30%. I'm just going by myself as an audience member. I could definitely take 10% of content I just don't agree with. 20% of the material... Uh, but once it gets above 25% of material on a podcast or a substack that I just don't agree with or that I think is wrong, if I'm spending more than a quarter of the time saying, nope, incorrect, unproved, weak point, I start to get weary. There are certain cases where I disagreed with 20% and then I did some research and it turns out that that 20% figure was too high. I shouldn't have been disagreeing. I'll give you a concrete example. Do you know the economist Adam Tooze? Fairly left wing. I think MMT compatible. I don't think he believes in MMT, but he doesn't very much disagree. He more dislikes being too wary of budget deficits. I'm a wary budget deficit kind of guy. So that's a big red flag. But, you know, I waited in. He's very smart. I started reading his stuff and I found myself disagreeing. But then more than once, I looked under the hood and that guy made me change my mind. You know who's flirting with the 20% threshold for me? Pivot, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. I consider Scott to be a great entertainer, but he recently went on a jag about how Redistricting and the weakness of New York Democrats led to George Santos? It's wrong. He does not know what he's talking about on this one. It's just wrong. Plus, you kind of know who Kara likes and doesn't like in tech. She puts that way out there. She doesn't really change her mind that much. I don't think she hasn't convinced me that Uber is mostly bad for us. Constant point she's making or that Airbnb really gets it, you know, deep down and her position doesn't change. So over and over, I kind of tell myself, all right, this is predictable. Is it really worth me saying no, 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 not again? Or am I just insisting that they keep telling me what I want to hear? I always think about that line. When I am a member of the audience demanding to be catered to, or when I am about to give up a show or hitting pause for a while, I I say to myself, okay, do they really deserve to go? Is it because of them or because of me? Am I always right? I like to be contradicted and have my worldview tested. What, you do that too much and you're dead to me? That doesn't seem fair. So once again, hey, you know, she doesn't always tell the audience what it wants to hear. Woohoo, Shiro! Or, I stopped listening. She kept saying things, and I was like, ugh, I just don't want to hear it. Yeah, same phenomenon. Different sheen. So what's happening now, as I hear it, and you should want to hear this, is that there are so few outlets that will consistently tell the audience what it doesn't want to hear, that are... Undoctrinaire, or if they are, they're just the consistent, reliable opposition. That's a niche, right? Barry Weiss on the free press, she's pretty good, but, or them, the whole staff, they're they're not really doctrinaire, but you know they're going to pursue, say, the question of vaccine overreach a lot more than they are going to publish, in fact, maybe a 100 to 1 ratio if they ever publish stories about why, in some cases, mandates were definitely needed. We need both those stories, I think. So I guess we say, all right, Barry will be the corrective to the rest of the so-called mainstream media. But then you come to Aaron Meatt, Matt. Taibi, Glenn Greenwald, the cadre of left-wing journalists who would tell you over and over again how the media was bamboozled into overhyping the Trump-Russia connection. That position needs an airing, but I don't think it's as strong as they think it is. And they will never tell you the times where-I mean, they definitely will say, look, we find Trump's policies loathsome, but they're never gonna tell you all the times where You know, the Washington Post and the New York Times and MSNBC got it right. They nailed facts. They advanced the story. The public deserved to learn a bunch of what was going on. They are simply the reliable opposition. They're there to serve everyone who just knew there wasn't a tape on down to everyone who thought there was really going to be a smoking gun that Mueller uncovered. I've heard Matt Taibbi admit wrongdoing here and there, predicting Russia wouldn't invade Ukraine. I mean, how is he going to have any credibility if he makes that error and then doesn't own it? But on what the true analysis of Trump and Russia is, I think it's something like, well, there was a lot of media hype that was disproved or didn't pan out. There was also a lot of truth to a president who Im- properly knew the russians were trying to affect the election and liked it he just liked it and he liked it because it benefited him taibbi and those of his ilk aren't going to tell the audience that i don't know if they believe that but it's definitely true their audience doesn't want to hear that i don't know if it's technically audience capture i think they're not lying or feeling hemmed in by the audience. It's more like if you hang a shingle as a little guy going up against a huge media brand, it makes no sense to muddy your position on anything other than the photo negative of the narrative establishing behemoths, behemoths, your audience turns to you to hold to account. So do that. You know, I don't know if there are any outlets out there who aren't in serious fear of losing their audience by telling them what they don't want to hear. Uh, there may be one, I'll get to that. But first, let's get to Fox. They're living in fear of their audience, it was just revealed. I mean, we always knew their primetime hosts were polemicists and movement conservatives, and maybe they would say entertainers, certainly not journalists, but because of disclosures in the Dominion Law case, we found out just how scared of the audience they were. It became apparent to even the biggest pro-Trump voices within Fox that the election lies told by Giuliani, Mike Lindell, Sidney Powell, they were all nonsense. And after the Fox News Desk accurately called Arizona for Trump, and after elements of the news side of their network tried to make clear that Trump hadn't won, the Fox primetime host sensed danger. We can't say that. Hannity complained, quote, Fox viewers are switching the channel specifically to watch Sidney Powell as a guest. Despite the fact that they knew... Email showed they knew Sidney Powell was spewing nonsense. It's been revealed that one of Sidney Powell's sources wrote a memo that Fox cited on air, and this source described her own mental processes as like time travel in a semi-conscious state. This source also said, and we don't know who she is because the court documents didn't reveal her names to save her embarrassment, she said that the wind tells her she's a ghost and that I've had the strangest dreams since I was a little girl I was internally decapitated and yet I live. The reason why Fox kept airing Sidney Powell and her crazy claims that their own executives called wackadoodle was they lived in fear of their audience. They were deathly afraid of ceding ground to networks who were comparatively wackier and doodlier. Tucker Carlson wrote, do the executives understand how much credibility and trust we've lost with our audience? An alternative like Newsmax could be devastating us. He wrote to his producer, how much credibility we've lost with our audience. Credibility is an interesting word. It has the same Latin roots as believe. So it's usually mean just how much they believe us, but it also has the same Latin roots as creed or credo, a set of beliefs. So Carlson is not wrong to acknowledge it will damage Fox in terms of viewers who need to know we share their set of beliefs. It's an interesting insight into the question of what would happen if Fox or any outlet was censored or had their content moderated. The answer seems very clear to me is that the audience would still exist because they'd seek out other, maybe more extreme content elsewhere. So it's very clear to see that this is a problem when you're talking about Fox and the living decapitee. But you know, when it's MSNBC and consistent exaggerations after the most high-profile cases that Benjamin Crump has handled, maybe it's less easy to see. Maybe you chafed at that comparison. But there is some comparison there. Both election denial claims and many of the statements that lawyer Benjamin Crump puts forward right after a high-profile police shooting are inaccurate. He claimed Jacob Blake wasn't armed. He claimed Micaiah Bryant wasn't armed. That added to unrest in the cities where those claims were based. He claimed that Breonna Taylor was shot in her bed and that Louisville police would soon be charged, which led to some degree of unrest in that city. All of that was not true. And lots of outlets would not say it wasn't true because their audience didn't want to hear them saying it wasn't true. Now, what's the one exception? It could be the New York Times. They recently dug in their heels over the issue of covering gender therapy in teens. Questions of medicalization, parental notification, surgical intervention, costs of hormone therapy, good articles. But these were objected to by activists who said the Times was challenging, quote, their right to exist. But these were thorough. These were well reported. The objectors didn't even cite mistakes, their objections, the only substantive objections were things like the use of the phrase patient zero in one of the articles. The fact that a detransitioner, someone who changed to male, then changed back to female, was the president of an organization for detransitioners, and she was only identified in her personal capacity. These aren't even mistakes. You know, yesterday, the Times had a story on ketamine as prescribed by Teledox. The story has huge overlap with some of the trans stories they ran that were said to be challenging people's right to exist. It was, in each case, a medical intervention that advocates argue saves lives and, if denied, will lead to suicide, is being prescribed more loosely than ever before, and highly credentialed medical professionals have qualms. It's clear there is a significant portion of the Times audience that just does not want to read their coverage as it exists of these questions over trans issues. And if the Times didn't cover these issues, as the Washington Post, USA Today and LA Times really don't, not with the depth and rigor on these specific issues of medicalization, there'd be no cost to those papers. But the Times did support its journalists. They stated, quote, GLADS, that's the advocacy organization, GLADS' advocacy mission and the Times' journalistic mission are different. Huzzah. That was me. I was huzzahing. Times didn't write huzzah in a statement. And the missions are different. Although recent trends in objecting to objectivity and emphasizing harm and marginalization are blurring the lines between if those missions are different. The interesting thing about the Times and this issue isn't right or wrong, ethical or unethical. It's that they were bold enough in this case to tell some members of the audience something they may not want to hear or read. And they were bold enough. But it is getting rarer and rarer. There was a time when the newspapers, the best newspapers, could all say this. They knew that they were the town newspaper. Where else are you going to go for want ads and the funnies and sports scores and, you know, all the other news? Now the answer is... 50,000 other places, only a few outlets feel they have the flexibility to upset the audience. And I think it's a really important quality to retain. I want news outlets to operate knowing they can, no wait, knowing they need to piss off some parts of their audience sometimes. And I, as a member of the audience, want to be pissed off and challenged. And I don't want to be overly quick to say, I just don't want to hear it. Well, thanks for hearing me out. And if you totally disagree, I would hate to have you go. But I do think we're better off if you stay. And that's it for today's show. You know, that whole spiel reminds me that subscribe.mikepesca.com might be a good way to bolster the kind of news organization that believes in sometimes risking pissing off the audience. I'm just saying subscribe at mikepesca.com. Corey War is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. She's spearheading much of the subscription initiative at great personal cost. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For all your advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperuji peru duperu. And thanks for listening. I think last night I went into a place that I shouldn't have gone to. No, you're too harsh on yourself. No, always yeah, because you last night I was like, yes, the Democrats are like eating children beneath pizza shops. Yeah, but that obviously is there like There are people meme. watching that who don't know that I'm fucking with them. Yeah, but what are you going to be? They're like, thank you. They're like, finally, <laughs> are you, a, the, a young, handsome person is saying it. Are you Jesus? What, are you going to fix everybody? Come on, bro. You're there. You're there to tell jokes. I'm not here to fix people, but I'm certainly not here to like stoke the flame. Yeah,
1: divide the country.